Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and on today's episode my co-presenter John Dorney is talking to the historian Joe Connell about Michael Collins. If you'd like to listen to this or any previous episode of the show, please go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie, check us out on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or like our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And if you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes. It really helps us. So here is John Dorney talking to Joe Connell. Joe Connell, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much. So we're going to be talking today about a very iconic figure in Irish history, Michael Collins. And before we start about the detail, can I ask you what drew you to Michael Collins or draws you to Michael Collins? Uh, John, as you, you, you know, I've been writing these books for some time. When I originally came to uh, Ireland about 25 years ago, uh, I was reading books that were in existence that time on the rising. But with a military background, uh, I was trying to find out where things happened and how they did with a little bit more specificity than were in the books at the time. Um, somebody in the military always has a tendency to say, what would I do or what wouldn't I have done? And that's where I was looking to it. So I start out with the rising, went through the War of Independence and, of course, the Civil War. And Collins appears everywhere. That's not to say he was involved with things from the rising point at, uh, in a uh, leadership role. He was not, not by any means. But he was the kind of a personality that took on a great many things as he went through his life. And so he just kind of kept appearing. He does seem to possess this special charisma, though, Collins. He does. And in a sense, though, it's, it's both the charisma which attracts people, but he also put off a great many people by his way. Collins was a very impatient man. I think, I think if you look at the, uh, the qualities that he has, one of them is impatience. And so if he saw something that had to be done, whatever it was, he would do it, which would get in the way of someone who was supposed to have done that. So throughout his time in the cabinet, for example, and then in, during the War of Independence, he created some enemies, he created some enmities, which continued all the way through to the Civil War. So he was, he was very much of a lightning rod for those who liked him and for those who disliked him. Yeah, and the nickname, the big fella, is in, in equal part uh, praise and criticism. It is. His, his family, his sisters said that they called him the big fellow when he was a, a young man because uh, they thought that he was trying to take on too, too big a tasks. He would pick up the heaviest pail of milk or something like this. But I think most people would accept that the big fella comes from his time in Frangog, where, as you suggest, exactly, some people thought that he was the one who was getting everything done, and others thought he was the one who was getting in the way all the time. So it's very, very much of a dichotomy. Yes, because acting the big fella could mean, you know, someone whose, whose head was too big for their shoulders kind of thing. Absolutely. And, and many people thought it that way. And some people looked at, upon it very affectionately, if you will. Some people called him that. Others who called him that, it, it was a very derogatory and derisive term. Okay. Now, one thing that you've said, Joe, is that Collins saw himself as a soldier, but his real talent was as a, an administrator. Can you explain that point? Well, he always said, for example, when he was going to the treaty, he said he was a soldier. He was not a politician. And I disagree with both of those, as, as, as you mentioned. I think that he was an administrator. I think that this is where his genius comes from. He was trained as an administrator. He went to, to London when he was a young man. He went to work in the in the post office. Then he went to work for Morgan Guarantee Trust. I think Collins was the kind of individual, as we see in his later life, who was very observant of how things worked. And I think he picked up on the things that worked well. And I think even as, in his administration of the Ministry of Finance, I think that at that point, he was applying the lessons that he learned as a younger man. He went to London as, as a teenager, and he, he worked for the post office and I think a couple of banks in London as well. He worked for the bank, he worked for the, uh, the Board of Trade, he worked for the um, guarantee, uh, trust, uh, Morgan Guarantee Trust Bank. One of the things I think that we, we uh, misunderstand about Collins is that when we take a look at him as the Minister of Finance, we say, well, that makes sense because he worked for Morgan Guarantee Trust. He was, in fact, in charge of the clerks there. It was not that he had a great uh, academic or economic education by any means, nor was he there long enough to really assimilate a great many of the financial or economic things of the time. So I think he was simply a great observer, and he, he took the idea of administration to heart. He knew that things had to be done very well. One of the ways that he demonstrated his petulance, really, was that he told everyone he wanted to have notes on things. He wanted to always have those notes in ink. And that was a very different kind of a, a way for people working. 
on the other hand. Collins is always very one hand, other hand. On the other hand, those notes were often captured by the British in their raids, and they led to a great many other problems as well. So it wasn't a situation of a straight line by any means from 1916 to, to his later life. So if, if he learned organizational skills in London, uh, he was also, I think, sworn into the IRB in London as well. He was. He went in the IRB in 1909. Uh, he had been raised in the IRB. His father was in the IRB. His teacher in school was in the IRB. Uh, James Santry, who was the uh, uh, blacksmith in the town where he was, was in the IRB. Then he went to London, and actually Sam McGuire uh, uh, moved him into the IRB, swore him into the IRB in 1909. The, the Sam McGuire. Uh, the Sam McGuire uh, swore him into the IRB in 1909, and then he, he was there. That was for the rest of his life. The IRB was extremely important to Collins then. He then, of course, became the head of the IRB later on. The IRB formed his opinions, and then he used the IRB to try and get his opinions across to everybody else in Ireland as well. I mean, the, the IRB's background, certainly by that time, was a very secret organization. Uh, and did this inform Collins' way of doing business? I think it did. I think that Collins saw the, the, the benefits of the secretiveness. He was that way throughout his life. He was secretive in terms of even his operations as Minister of Finance. He would tell people one thing and then tell somebody else exactly different. He, of course, was the head of the IRB at the end of his life. And he was always reporting to them as much as to anybody else. Yet the IRB in its constitution since 1867 had indicated that it was the real government of Ireland. And in many ways, I think Collins took that to heart, certainly when he tried to uh, reconstruct the constitution and rework it in 1920 and then 1922. It was again to bring the IRB back into, into prominence. So I think in terms of his actions all the way through his life, he was very involved in it. He was involved in the Brotherhood. And many of those with whom he um, associated in the IRB were extremely important. And then they, I think later on in their lives, 1924 in the mutiny, for example, they really brought the IRB to the fore, whereas it was such a secretive organization, I don't think most people in Ireland knew anything about it. You mentioned Michael Collins wasn't that important in the, in the Rising, but let's talk briefly about what he did in the, in the Easter Rising. Well, he came back in January of uh, 1916. He actually came back on the very day that conscription was going to be imposed in Britain. So he came back here, and he was here from the January uh, through, through April in the Rising. He was actually working for the Plunkett family. And he was one who was working as a, as a bookkeeper, really, for the Plunkett family. He went out to Kimmage most every day, where the, uh, most of the people from Britain were, in the, in the, uh, who were going to be in the Rising. Strange enough, the people there didn't really like him. Joe Good, for example, indicated that he thought that he was very self-important. Going back to what we mentioned earlier, the concept, that the term, the big fella, he was very self-important. He did have a uniform. Most of them, of course, did not have him. Collins was very vain. He was... The kind of person where, after the uh, truce in, uh, was was taken, when his picture was taken, he always was looking at the camera. He was always very aware of it. And in terms of his uniforms, he was always very well dressed. He always made sure the uniforms were tailored perfectly. So a great many of the people there before the rising did not like him. He was the aide-de-camp to Joe Plunkett during the rising itself. He wasn't a GPO. He hurt his hand just before the rising started, so I'm not sure he ever could have even fired a weapon in the rising. It could have held a, held a weapon. Um, but he had, he had just a perfunctory role. He was an administrative role. One thing he did, though, along with Dermot Lynch, he was one of the ones who went around in the GPO started taking down names. Administration, again, comes to the fore. The concept of seeing who's here and let everybody know about it. Why was he taking names? What good was that? What he wanted to know was if, if anything happens, if anyone's killed or if they're, they're wounded or if they're missing, he would have a list of the people who are there. Right, but... Obviously, the British would have it if they... Anyway. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. Collins was not the kind who would, have, who would have depended upon someone else to do what he thought should have been done, which is one of the problems that he had later on in the cabinet. He would have said, this has to be done, and he would do it. Then he would go to a cabinet meeting, and he would say to someone, oh, I've already done that. And that's not the way to get along with your cabinet mates. So Collins really rose to prominence after the Rising, though. Uh, can you explain how he became such an important figure? He really became a figure, actually, after the Rising. 
he went to Stafford Prison, then he, along with so many others, was transferred to Frangach. He, he came to, uh, to prominence in Frangach. Again, the IRB is very important. He was already a member of the IRB. They started to swear in the new members of the IRB there. Because of his membership, and he talked to the other brothers there, he again started to become very important there. He was one of the ones who would uh, set up the rules for the huts. He was also one of the ones who would talk to the British and try and make sure that the Irish were treated as political prisoners. So he was one of the ones here at Frangach who did that. Then when he came back afterwards, he did go to work for Kathleen Clark uh, in, the, in a volunteer's dependence fund. And I think it's very important to underscore he went to work for her, not the other way around. Huh. Again, IRB comes up here. When Thomas Clark, a member of the IRB, is going off to the Rising, he gives Kathleen Clark not only all the money that they had for the IRB, but he gave her all the contacts, the names, everything else. So between what she had and what Collins was able to glean in Frangach, they were the ones who really were able to advance the volunteers going forward. Now, skipping forward a little bit, so, in 1918, they win the election, of course. Sinn Féin wins the election. They declare the Irish Republic. Collins, in theory, his position is Minister for Finance for the first Dáil mm-hmm. and Director of Intelligence of the IRA, as the volunteers are now known. Mm-hmm. But in practice, his position becomes something more than that, doesn't it? It does. Even if you take a look at the, uh, the Doyle going into effect in 1919, the General Headquarters, GHQ, was established in Dublin. The General Headquarters of the Volunteers was established in, du- in Dublin in March of 1918. So even before that, they were looking forward to some kind of a physical force movement. Collins was considered to be the um, chief of staff at the time, but he was not elected. And the reason was, again, the concept of the big fellow. They weren't sure that because he was so young that he would have been the person for that job. So 1918 goes by, he gets elected, the Doyle is established. He's not there, of course. He's with Harry Boland in Britain, trying to break Eamon de Valera out of the, the jail there. And so he, though, was very important at the time. People looked at him. It's interesting to note that in the... Uh, first meeting of the Doyle, there were those four documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the uh, message to the other nations, but there was also a democratic program, which was put forth by labor. It was very socialist in mind. It was something that James Connolly, when it was put forth, would have liked. Collins and the others did not like it, and in fact, they really toned it down considerably so that James Connolly would not have recognized it by the time the democratic program went through. So even then, Collins was demonstrating his leadership, but also some of his ideas about finances in Ireland going forward. You might expand on that a little bit. So did Collins have expansive views on the future of Ireland? I'm not so sure he had expansive views on the future of Ireland, except to say that he was not in favor of socialism. Mm. And the concept of a socialist republic, a workers' republic, as James Connolly had had so espoused, that was not something with which Collins, Collins was in agreement. After the Rising, Collins said that among the people during the Rising, the one he would have followed forever was James Connolly. Mm. And yet I don't think he agreed necessarily with his social views, Mm. and he certainly was very much opposed to a a democratic program, as it was named there going forward in the the, uh, Doyle. Like, in theory, in the War of Independence, which is what we now call it, it wasn't called that at the time, but Richard Mulcahy was the chief of staff of the IRA, and... The overseer was Carl Brewer, the Minister for Defence. Yes. But in reality, that wasn't really necessarily the case, was it? Well, I think that Collins and Mukahi moved, if not in lockstep, they moved very close to it. I think they communicated very well with one another. I think they liked one another. I don't think that either one of them liked Cahabrua. And I think that Cahabrua continued in his activities at, at Lawler, the candle makers, where he was the uh, managing director. I think he continued and he didn't devote his full time to it, which was his intent. It, it was not the, that he was set aside. That was just simply what he wanted. I think that Brewer sometimes felt that he was neglected. He, he always wanted to be the, the minister for defense and he always wanted, wanted to be involved. But I think that the Makahi and Collins clearly were way ahead and, and did things without his, his knowledge, which, again, was very typical of Collins and which created that enmity, certainly with Cahal Brewer, that um, boiled up at the very end. Yeah, I mean, I remember reading once in, in uh, an Army Inquiry much later that someone asked, in 1920 was Mulcahy Collins' boss, basically? And, and 
you can almost see the interviewee looking at him saying, of course not, you know. So, I mean, can, can you explain this kind of informal position that Colin had, Colin's had? You mentioned earlier about Collins's charisma. I think it's very important. I think that he's, he really got along very well with some people. And that charisma became a friendship slash business relationship, if you will, that we see in some things today. Collins and Cahey got along very, very well. And I think Collins was, uh, in, in a sense, Collins was the man in front who would go talk to the various people. Makahi was the one who was doing the hard, um, the hard work as, as a, an administrator in the army and was doing the things necessary to, to be chief of staff. So I think they got along well, and I think the, relate, the personal relationship was one that, that carried over. Yeah. Now, the image that people have of Michael Collins today is very much shaped by popular culture, I'd say. Like, uh, you know, so obviously the movie Michael Collins, which I promise not to talk too much about. Cause, <laughs> but in the movie, for example, you know, Collins is uh, holding a rifle, attacking barracks you know, setting them on fire. And that didn't happen. That's not what Collins was about, right? It did not happen at all. And so when people look at him in that particular way, I think that they get a great misconception of him. They're misinformed that did not happen. He certainly was someone who supposedly carried a, a weapon on his person once in a while, but even that didn't happen very often. He was he was not a what we call in the military a line soldier. He was what we call in the military a staff soldier. He was very much in in the background. He was very much the planner. He was extremely involved. I think he, he cared tremendously about the, the men and the women uh, who worked for him and the, the travails that they that they underwent. But he was not act, actively involved in any way during the War of Independence. No. So, what was his, his central importance in the War of Independence? I think his central importance, uh, it's, it's hard for me to say exactly because he did so many various things. Certainly the, the Minister for Finance, he raised money, but that money went to the administration of Ireland. That money did not go to the purchase of weapons. So again, he was acting there as an administrator. He was very, very involved in intelligence. Again, he was a leader of intelligence. He had he had Cullen and Tobin and other men working for him. He had a legion of women and men who were accumulating inf information for him, whether it be Lily Merton, Mernon or uh, Ned Broy. He was rather a coordinator of, of intelligence, so I think that was something for which we must recognize him. Also, he had a view that I think if we take a look at the things he said, the things he did in his correspondence all the way through, he knew that the Irish were not going to beat the English, the British, in the War of Independence militarily. They were going to have to bring them to a position where the British would realize their interests were best served by negotiation as well. All the way through, I think Collins had that as his view. It takes a great deal of, of foresight to see that. I think he had that. It also took a great deal of ruthlessness to bring them to that point, and he had that as well. Let's talk a bit about the ruthlessness. Like the most obvious example is, is the squad and, and Bloody Sunday, but also all the other activities of the squad. Let's talk about Collins' ruthless side. Collins was one who, who looked at the military principle of getting your retaliation in first. I think he understood that he was going to have to have extreme violent actions in order to A, get the attention of the British, and then B, to dissuade some of the Irish who were working for the British. There was no question in my mind that he was a ruthless man all the way through. At the times in the movie that you mentioned before, he said to Harry Boland, no, violence is, is the last thing. And sometimes, in Collins' opinion, I think violence was the worst, was the first thing he chose. And that was simply a part and parcel of the way that he thought the war should be um, prosecuted. And Collins' role is largely you know, eliminating British intelligence agents in Dublin. You know, his, his hands-on role is mostly in planning that, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. You know, when you take a look at the elimination of the G Division, the intelligence division of the DMP, if you take a look at his idea of getting rid of the British intelligence, even which trickled down to the countryside, bringing the British troops back into the barracks so they lost their ability to have any intelligence on the countryside itself. But it was his brutalness and his ruthlessness was in getting rid of the men themselves. He always said the British can replace the men, but they can't replace their knowledge. Mm -hmm. So his view was, if you don't have any contact with the British, I will leave you alone. But if you don't stop your contact, your intelligence activities with the British, I will eliminate you. Right. I mean, 
I want to make two more points on that and, and then we'll, we'll move on. But one thing is that Collins was quite critical of the Easter Rising and he felt that it was, you know, kind of a, a theatrical performance. And his, and I would say Mulcahy's conception of guerrilla warfare is much more practical, isn't it? It's much more down and dirty, but much more kind of about stripping away the, the supports of the administration. Oh, absolutely. Um, guerrilla warfare is really composed of, of different concepts. It's intelligence, which we've spoken about, but it's also politics, it's propaganda, and then it's a very loosely coordinated, in the Irish War of Independence, a very loosely coordinated military activity. None of those can be done without the other. I think Collins, more than some of the others, recognized the absolute necessity of intelligence, of politics, of propaganda, alongside the military aspect of it. Guerrilla wars are not won then, they're not won now by military means. They are won by the fact that you're getting a regime that's in existence out of being in existence. Negotiating out, maybe, leaving, maybe, getting tired, maybe, not in, be able to, not in being able to tell their own country that we should be in this particular area. But the other aspects, besides military action, are extremely important, and Collins and Mulcahy recognize that. So, m moving on a little bit, you've mentioned that Collins was also a, a political actor and he understood the need for negotiation to end the conflict in Ireland. He knew it couldn't be won by military means. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of Collins' thinking about the need for a compromise? Well, I think as Collins went on, I think he saw that he could eliminate a great deal of the British Army's influence and the British militaries throughout the country and then in Dublin particularly. But I think he also saw that no matter how much they did of that, they were not going to get the British out of there unless they did, unless the political move was made. Collins throughout his life was a deal maker. Uh, he was negotiating with people. He met Andy Cope from the castle a great many times. Uh, he was always someone who recognized that if we can make a deal, let's do it and go from there. We said that we see that in the end of the War of Independence, moving toward the truce, and then in the treaty negotiations, and then we see that between the treaties, ratification, and the end of his life, he was always trying to make the best deal possible. On the truce negotiations, one thing that struck me is, in 1919, Collins tried to have Sir John French killed, who was the at that time the leading administrator in Ireland, mm -hmm. Lord, Lord Lieutenant, but he was particularly important at that time. Uh, but that, to my knowledge, is the last time Collins tried to have a very senior member of the administration killed. And I wonder, was Colin, had Collins one eye on talks the whole time? I think he did. Remember, as you get to the end of 1919, uh, after Bloody Sunday, right immediately after Bloody Sunday, for example, Archbishop Clune from uh, Perth, Australia, who was a, a, an Irishman originally, came to uh, Ireland and started talking. So the truce, which is, of course, in July of 1921, that didn't happen overnight. And Collins's negotiations with Cope didn't happen overnight. And Collins's negotiations with, with Clune were seven months before that. Collins knew that this was the way to go. It's often said that sooner or later, uh, people are always going to have to negotiate. And the most intelligent of them know that it's better to do it sooner rather than later. And I think that applies to Collins. He knew where they were going. Right. And yet, he was quite a reluctant negotiator of the treaty. Famously, Eamon de Valera sent him against really Collins's wishes. Yes, I would disagree with the phrasing in that question, though, only in this sense. I'm not sure he was reluctant uh, reluctant for the negotiations, mm -hmm. but he was reluctant to go himself, very, very reluctant to go himself. He thought of himself then as a soldier. We've talked about that, and I disagree with his concept. But he always thought that it would be better to hold him back as to be this person that maybe we have to hold Collins back because everybody thought of him as the murderer of the Irish. De Valera was never going to go with that. I think De Valera did not want to go to the treaty negotiations himself. He was never going to put himself in a position that he would talk to Lloyd George and say, but I must check with Michael Collins in Ireland. That was never going to fit into a De Valera plan. Not a chance. So you're absolutely correct in the way that you ask it. Collins was very reluctant to go. He said, I'm a soldier. I'm not a politician. He turned out to be, I'm not going to say a good politician or a good negotiator, but I think he surprised a great many, including the British, the British delegation. So the treaty that was eventually signed will eternally be debated in Ireland, but we will just go we'll touch on a few important points. So Collins agreed on some things that some of his comrades uh, disagreed with, and one of them is the oath of allegiance or fidelity, depending on your 
preferred interpretation. Another one is uh, partition. Another one is the British retention of, of ports and naval bases in Ireland. Why would Collins, the longtime IRB member, have agreed to this? Well, I think overall Collins was a realist. I think he felt that going to negotiations was the important thing to do and the correct thing to do at that time. I think he, more than anybody else on the negotiating team, maybe more than anybody else on, in the cabinet, understood the very poor position that the IRA, the military aspect of the Irish, was in at that time. In my opinion, they were on their last legs. They were really, there were very few people on the streets in the countryside left. The British had almost 5,000 people in prisons. Uh, the IRA was really, really hurting. That way, from a manpower point of view, they were also very, very short of ammunition. They, they probably didn't run out of weapons. They ran out of ammunition. I think Collins, more than anybody, knew when they went there to London that the IRA was in a very poor position, and, and they had very little leverage, actually, with which to bargain. Um, I also think that the IRB was extremely important to Collins. I think he felt, as he said in public so many times, that the treaty was a stepping stone or it was a freedom to achieve freedom. In private, I think he, he used a different phrase. He always said, I'm going to work the treaty. Mm -hmm. Those things are two different things to me. I think Collins looked at the treaty as a beginning. I think he looked at it as a necessary end to the war, but beginning of the next part, the next aspect of it. He certainly was not going to back off on partition. He was not going to back off on um, going to the north. He was not going to back off on total freedom. On the, on the treaty ports, I think he felt that international opinion, which was so important in bringing the British to the table, was not going to really uh, be all that uh, destructive of the British desire for that. They just finished the, the First World War, where they had been greatly damaged by U-boats. It looked like they might need this again. I think Collins realistically looked at the treaty, Overall, said, I can work with this. I can deal with this. I mean, I think there's a misconception out there that's probably caused by the, the Civil War and, and everything that followed that people who took the Free State side in 1921-22 were necessarily moderates. And I don't think that's necessarily the case, especially with Collins and his close colleagues. No, at, at, at the start of conflicts, I think, certainly in the start of the, the War of Independence, you had moderates who were in action, and then you have the radicals who replace the moderates and take over in the War of Independence. I think, again, that many of the, the negotiators, many of the people on the British side looked at Collins as being the, the uh, real radical. Then he came over there and they thought, well, this is a real moderate, and then they were confused by de Valera's taking the opposite stance. I think it went back and forth in their opinion. Now, Collins was, if I'm going to use the term again, he was a realist. I think he knew this today is the best I can get, but tomorrow is another day, and I'm yeah. going to use it. I mean, I think Churchill said that Arthur Griffith was the only real free stater in, in that government. Arthur Griffith was probably the only one who was really, really satisfied. He got what he wanted in a great sense. He got what Sinn Féin wanted in 1905 with the resurrection of Hungary. He got two states with a single monarch kind of a thing. Uh, so I think Arthur Griffith was the only one who was extremely satisfied on either side with the treaty negotiations. My reading of it, Joe, is that Michael Collins, like you said, takes this deal, hopes to bring along the military movement with him uh, by saying, you know, if it's good enough for Mick, it's good enough for me kind of thing. But the problem is, as you said, that a lot of people just didn't like him in, in a personal level. And that's where that broke down. I agree with that. I, I think he knew he was going to have problems with it. People ask, is the Civil War inevitable? I don't think so. I think fighting was inevitable. I think you have people like uh, Liam Mellows, you have people like Rory O'Connor, some of the others, Liam Lynch. They did not like this at all. I don't think they understood it. I think they should have. I think Collins, I do know Collins went down to Cork in September before the treaty negotiations began and told the IRA leaders down there, the Munster leaders were the most active really in the War of Independence told them that they're not going to get a republic. I think they just didn't hear that, didn't listen to it, didn't believe it, thought that it wouldn't happen. So I think that he was going to have a terribly difficult time bringing some of those along, both because they disliked the concept of it and because, exactly as you suggest, because of his, his relationships with them. Uh, Collins was very good at forming relationships, but Collins' way of forming relationships uh, also, at, at the same time, would, would cause problems. Even with his own cousin, Nancy O'Brien, who was working for him in, in the, uh, the GPO and then uh, was decoding messages from the British, he was so harsh on her as an individual that she quit several times. 
Then he would go back and bring her candies and say, I'm very sorry. And she'd say, okay, that's fine. That's not a way to create long-lasting relationships sometimes. Sometimes the people don't come back and the candies don't work. Right. Now, we should probably talk a little bit about the, also the political split because to a degree, the split with Damon de Valera is again another clash of egos. There, there is more involved, but there, there is an element of that, isn't there? Oh, there's a huge element of that. Remember when de Valera came back from the United States in, in December of 1920, I think somebody met him and said, uh, the, the big fellow will be here tomorrow, the big fellow has things in hand. <clears throat> and de, de Valera did not like that term, the big fellow at all. He thought, I'm, I'm the big fellow, and, and so all did the, There was definitely, definitely a clash of egos. On the other hand, Collins really, I think, liked De Valera. He certainly took care of De Valera's family when De Valera was gone. I think he liked De Valera very much. I just think that he felt that De Valera did not understand, perhaps, the, the concepts of guerrilla war and where Ireland was after the end of being, being gone so long. So by 1921, the spring of 1921, and then certainly the last six months of 1921, there was definitely a clash of egos. In, in 1922, I mean, we can, you know, you can go back and forth in the treaty debates and, and who's right and who's wrong, but in, as 1922 goes on, Collins has a more fundamental problem, which is he's trying to administer the provisional government and there's two rival armies in the country. And that was probably never going to end well, I, I would say. Well, there's two rival armies, in a sense, there's two rival assemblies as well. Remember, the, the Doyle is going forward as well. The provisional <laughs> government has its assembly. The Doyle is, is, is abandoned, and then Connell, uh, Connelly, uh, I'm sorry, Collins takes care of the Provisional Assembly by never having it meet. So, yeah. so he, he kind of handles that as well. He's got the two armies that are going along in March of 1922. There's a supposed convention of the IRA, which is to bring everybody back. Collins and Mulcahy know that the, most of you who are going to come to that convention are going to be anti-treaty, so they prorogue that as well. He begins to act in, in a great many ways as someone who says, I'm not going to allow this to get away from me. I'm going to be in charge of every single aspect of this. He had a huge problem, and the army was that problem. He did try, and there were uh, various forms of accommodations. There were various meetings when they tried to get together uh, to, to bring the army there. They made their reports to the cabinet. But the fact of the matter is, they, they were so divergent in their opinions, the army was so divergent in, in its opinions, I don't see how it was going to be made to uh, come together. Yeah, I mean, Collins did work very hard to try to avoid civil war. Uh, he, had a, he had a pact with Eamon de Valera, an electoral pact. He got together with Liam Lynch, who had been elected uh, head of the anti-treaty IRA, as it now mm -hmm. was. Had things turned out a little differently, could he have avoided civil war? I, I don't think he could have avoided fighting, John. I think that, that you had some, some real hardcore, uh, McKelvey, O'Connor, um, William Mellows. Uh, I think you had some very hardcore people who, who were going to go down that. When they did ultimately have the IRA convention, um, you have people in there who say, well, let, let's just attack the British and we'll start the war all over again. And, of course, that was voted down. So I think you had some people there who, who simply did not like the treaty, did not like the, the, the provisions of it in any way. So I think there was going to be fighting. Collins did, exactly as you suggest, tried every means he could, uh, legitimate and illegitimate in the sense that he told an awful lot of people different things and tried to bring them around. And that was going to cause a problem for him down the road as well. Uh, he tried very, very hard. I don't know if he could have avoided any fighting at all. The events of the Civil War, I think, got away from him. Um, we know about De Valera's speeches in Waiting Through Irish Blood. Um, that didn't help by any means, of course. I, I just think that Collins was always going to have a problem bringing those two sides together. Now, one very murky thing from this period between the treaty, between the treaty signing and the start of the Civil War, which is about six months, is the North. Because, you know, in theory, this is a period of peace in Ireland, but in reality, it's, it's extremely violent in the North. And, and Collins's role is, is, let's say, far from clear. It's extremely violent in the North then, but it had been extremely violent in the North all the way through. We just sort of neglect that. We think that the fighting in the cities was limited to Dublin and Cork, and we recognize the policemen killed and every, everything of, 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 of military nature there. But there was fighting in Belfast all the way through, and there were a great many people there, mostly to fighting Belfast. I think we can attribute to sectarianism, whereas that's not the case in the South. But in fact, it was there. During that period that you suggest, from January to August of 1922, there was peace, if you will, in the South. So all of a sudden, the conflict in the North, the, the fighting, the killing in the North, becomes so much more apparent to everybody. It becomes apparent in international opinion, and it becomes apparent in the newspapers at the time. It was brutal up there. Uh, there were burnings, killings, 
just absolutely brutal kind of a thing. And yet Collins was always trying to bring the North in. Very surreptitiously, he was trading arms with those in the four courts, getting new arms from the British, giving the new arms, which he knew were traceable, to the four courts, and then the four courts would send arms to the North. And this is an extraordinarily risky tactic, and certainly if the British had found out, um, it, it would have abrogated the treaty probably uh, entirely. It also indicates a little bit of honor among thieves. Nobody was talking about it on either side. It would have been very easy maybe for the anti-treaty forces to uh, happen to let it slip that this happened, but they didn't. The British knew about this, I think. Uh, uh, Collins asked for a great many weapons in May that he didn't get because I think the, the British knew. He was also involved in kidnappings in the North. He was involved in hostage-taking. He was involved in trying to set up a... Uh, an attack in the north. Actually, if you take a look at May of 1922, he was involved in a in a, a, a certain um, uh, invasion of the north. He was always involved in trying to do that, much, I think, to the chagrin of what they knew, but they didn't know much in the cabinet about him doing this. Yeah. He was doing this mostly on his own. This is the Irish cabinet, I should em emphasize, yes. not the British one. Yeah. Yes. Well, the British cabinet, I think, he, I think the British cabinet probably knew just about as much as the Irish cabinet, and neither one of them knew anything. Yeah. Collins was working on his own. I mean, I'm going to have to ask you to speculate here, Joe, but what was Collins playing at? I mean, he's meeting with Churchill and Craig, you know, Craig, the new Northern Ireland Prime Minister, saying peace is declared. He's also sending arms by the, by the truck full to the north uh, and involved in various schemes. At the same time, some people will tell you that, you know, he pulled back from the full Northern offensive that was supposed to happen in May 1922 and he was double-crossing the IRA. But what was he playing at, though? I think Collins had an end goal in mind. I don't think he had in his mind a means to get there. I think he was trying any means he could bring any way he could to get to that end goal. And I think that they were very often they were counterproductive, they were counterintuitive. I think the people in the North who have written about this say that very often the activities that he did really didn't help at all. They really kind of hurt. Uh, Ernest Blythe, who was in the in the Irish cabinet here, was from the north, and when he found out some of the things, he was very much in disfavor of them. He didn't think they were helping either. I don't think Collins had a plan. I think he simply had a excuse me. I think he had an end goal, but I don't think he had a plan. Mm. So moving on, the as it turns out, there wasn't a war with the north. There was a war in the south, um, and it was caused by um, a very famous and controversial event, which was well, let me. It was sparked by a very controversial event, uh, the assassination of Henry Wilson, uh, which Henry Wilson is a field marshal, very senior in the British Army in the First World War. Uh, he was killed in, in London by two IRA men, but some people will tell you it was ordered by Michael Collins. What do you think of that? There are a lot of things that we don't know about this time, and that's certainly one of them. I don't think we know who ordered the killing of Field Marshal um, Wilson at the time. He certainly was on a list that Collins had made up to be killed earlier in the war. But as a lawyer, I look at things, one of the, one of the phrases I like so much that I apply is cui bono, who benefits. I can't see the benefit to Collins at this time for killing Wilson. Maybe I can see the benefit to others, but I can't see Collins looking at this as being beneficial. Certainly Wilson was very involved in the North, and people blamed him for the actions against the Catholics in the North, rightly so. But I don't think that Collins would have thought, if I kill him, those actions will stop. So I can't see the benefit to Collins. Benefit maybe to Roy O'Connor and those in the four courts? I can almost see that. Because if the British come back and attack the Irish, that's exactly what Roy O'Connor wants. In fact, the British army was ordered, General McCready was ordered to attack the four courts. McCready, being a little bit better of a general than, than that, said, no, I think we'll wait on this. That'd be a, that'd be a huge mistake. But if he had done that, that might have brought about the, 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 the reinstitution of the War of Independence in, in another, another way, if you will, and that might have suited O'Connor perfectly. So I don't know who, who ordered it. It did spark a great deal of activity on the British. It's certainly one of the events that I look to as causing the attack on the four courts, which we must agree, I think, was the spark for the, the Civil War. Absolutely. And just on the attack on the four courts, so... Let's just run through a number of the explanations for why it happened, and, and you can expound more. So one is that the British uh, ordered Collins to do it. Mm -hmm. 
uh, um, in retaliation for Henry Wilson, which they assumed was ordered by Rory O'Connor in the four courts. Another one is that it was retaliation for the arrest of a Free State General, J.J. Uh, O'Connell. And yet another one, which you've mentioned recently, is that it was to preempt the action of the four courts people in restarting the war with the British. Yeah, I think all of those play a role, and I think that they're all very important to look at this. You know, in history, very often we we look back in retrospect and we say there's one thing here that started this. If we look back at the First World War, probably most school kids will say it was the it was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Now the war was fun, bubbling and, and and going in every which way until that. Here in the Four Courts, you have a threat to the Irish government, which the British government, of course, thought had to be resolved. You do have um, the killing of uh, Field Marshal Wilson, which the killing, which the British said, "That's it. That's the last straw. Now you have to do something about this." So again, we're looking at that. We're looking at the British government supposedly telling Collins take care of this, and Collins supposedly saying, "Let Churchill come over and do his own dirty work." Um, but we have something I don't think people talk about very much, and that's along with this transfer of weapons from the Four Courts to the North. The, the Four Courts garrison really was looking to invade and to start a, a new war in the, in the North in order to bring the British back in, which they thought would reunify the IRA, and we fight the British again. The fact of the matter is, is they were doing that. There was a raid on Ferguson's garage here in Dublin at that time. The raid was really to get transportation to take troops and people up to the North. There was the capture of the leader of that group, Henderson, which led to the capture of J.J. O'Connell, as you said. But even that, we must look at it and say, but O'Connell was just walking his girlfriend back alone to the home, to his home after going to the theater, which is not the indication to me of a war starting in two days. It, what we have is, is the, the military commander of the, the, the Southern Forces, being Sean McKellen, who's in, in County Donegal with his, with his wife on, on, their, on their honeymoon. That's not the place where you expect your military commander to be two days before a new military action. So I think the attack on the Four Courts was really something that wasn't planned by either side. We don't even see on the part of the Four Courts people uh, starting to uh, accumulate foodstuffs and water and things of this type as, as they would if they knew the war was coming. I think it was something where it just got away from Collins again. So many of these things happen because they get away from the people in charge, not because they're planned for a long period of time. I mean, you can make a wider point about this, about you know, human endeavors, that it's very difficult to plan. I mean, things, things, people get overtaken by events. Things just happen, and overtaken by events is exactly the way to put it. Things just simply happen. Uh, again, going back to your previous question about Collins, I think he had a he had an end, but I don't think he had a plan necessarily how to get there. I think if you take a look at the War of Independence, it's that you look at that. He had a plan, probably halfway through at least, if not even further. Uh, he had a plan to come to a negotiating table, but how do we get there? Who knows? Once he attacks the four courts, or once the National Army attacks the four courts, the Civil War, for better or worse, is on. So people take sides. Um, would it be fair to say that Collins is a reluctant warrior in this case? Oh, very much so. And in, in a sense, I think some of the others were as well. Remember, they had Liam Lynch who was captured. They had Liam Deasy who was captured here. And the Free State soldiers let them go because they thought they could negotiate with them going down the line. So I think that they, there were a great many uh, reluctant warriors who subsequently became extremely one-sided in their view that they, they would not compromise at all. I think Collins was. He did not, again, want to uh, fight that war. He kept putting out feelers to people. He kept saying, in fact, we can try and end this and then we'll go down the road. I think, again, he was a deal maker and he was trying to make a deal and he couldn't do so. Some people in recent years, uh, well, some people at the time and also some people in recent years, such as John Regan, for example, have raised concerns about the concentration of power in the person of Michael Collins, especially after the outbreak of the Civil War. Can you speak a bit about that and some of the concerns people had? Well, I, I think that those are legitimate concerns. I think if you take a look at Collins, he was acting as the head of the provisional government. Uh, he was being given deference by a great many members of the cabinet. Uh, always, whatever Collins wanted was, was pretty much what was done. Uh, some people like Peter Hart have said that, that there was not as much deference as we think. But I don't think when you look at some minor appointments and things like that, that that would, would constitute uh, uh, any kind of balance to, to Collins. He was acting, prior to July, he was acting pretty much the way he wanted to work. On July 12th, of course, he said that he was going to stop his ministerial duties. He was going to become the commander-in-chief of the army and take over military duties entirely. 
two days later, he, he asked uh, Arthur Griffith to, to point him to that. So I, he always recognized that a balance was needed. He always recognized the constitutionality was needed. But I think he's always felt he could get around it a little bit and, and, and move around it. He certainly acted in, in many cases as someone who had a, absolute authority. Um, the, the term dictator is, is, is a very offensive term to some people, so I don't know if that's a term we want to use. But he certainly acted as an absolutist. He was in, in, in charge, really, of the, the civil uh, government. He was in charge of the military government. He was in charge of the planning for both. He was in charge of those activities, as we spoke about, for the North. He was pretty much acting on his own initiative. And Regan, in particular, has, has emphasized one of Collins' actions in proroguing the Dáil. So the Dáil is, is elected just before the start of the Civil War. Um, it, it never meets as long as Collins is alive. And five times, uh, is, is, uh, by my count, he uh, he actually said, no, we won't meet yet, no, we won't meet yet. And then finally, at the very before, just before his death, he would say, we will meet when all of this is over. So the Civil War, in his mind, was going to have to be over first. And that went all the way to the 21st of August, just the day before he died, in which he wrote that, that, that it would not be... Uh, the, the, the assembly would not meet again. If you take a look, on the 24th of July, the cabinet did say, yes, now we will meet. So very, very soon thereafter, indicating that they felt that they, they needed to have this and also indicating how much authority Collins had at the time. The Labor Party had said in the early parts of August, if you don't meet, we will withdraw our support from this government. And Collins even then said, we, we'll get around that. We don't care. He didn't mm -hmm. indicate at all that he was going to have any assembly meet until the war was over and until he determined it was bound to meet. But let me set up two rival interpretations of that, and, and you can speak about them. So one, um, by uh, analogy with, say, Abraham Lincoln during the American Civil War. So Lincoln did a number of things. He closed down a number of state legislatures, I think, mm -hmm. and, and he suspended habeas corpus, I think, during the Civil War. And certain people called Lincoln a dictator, which would have very little credence today. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Link Lincoln is viewed as the man who saved democracy or saved the union by emergency measures and then returned to, to peacetime measures. So was Collins like that? Or, alternatively, was he like someone like, say, Kemal Ataturk in Turkey, for example, who's a military man who ultimately makes himself head of state, even though there's, you know, there are elections, but really he's the boss. Was, was Collins on that spectrum or... Collins would be on the spectrum of being absolutist. I think sometimes when we look at Lincoln, we uh, he did in some states do other things which um, he didn't do in in the states in the north. So he, he did some things in the south which he didn't do in the north, kind of thing. But that didn't make any difference because he had no control of the south anyway. Mm. Um, I think in times of emergency. The leaders do take sort of actions which, after the fact, people can look back upon, certainly people with whom uh, they, they disagree with those actions, look back upon them and say that that was where uh, really uh, they were the actions of, of an individual that, that wanted total power. I think one of the things we might want to do is go back to the, the origin of the term dictator, which comes from Roman times, where the Roman Senate uh, voluntarily appointed someone to be what they called a dictator to take charge in times of crisis. I think that's more along the lines of where we would look at Collins. Yeah. He was someone who was in times of crisis. He had that personal propensity to take over things and to, to manage things and to do everything himself. It's true. And I think it kind of ran to extremes here. But he, I don't think he could be looked upon as a tyrant or as, as, as looked upon as, as an autocrat in the sense of completely eliminating anything. I just simply thought, think he looked upon it as a time of crisis, and he was the best one to do it. Also, I think he looked upon it as needing action to be done quickly. And that was also one of his, I think, downfalls during the War of Independence. He would do things too quickly sometimes and, and cause problems. So I, I'm not sure he would, he would be on the spectrum, but I'm not sure where he would fit into it. I don't think he would fit on the very uh, far right end as, as being a, a, an autocrat or a tyrant or anything like that. One thing, I, yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, one thing I would say as well is that Cullen seems to be a restraining force to a degree during the Civil War. He is, he does seem to be trying to contain violence and, and you know, avoid reprisals, which of course happened later on. Yeah, he did. Again, when he was asked by the cabinet about shooting people, about reprisals, he said that he would have no problem if, if someone were shot um, who was unarmed 
uh, you know, he would have a problem with someone who was shot if they were unarmed. Of course, that doesn't apply to someone who shoots a soldier and then puts the weapon down. He was always kind of vacillating a little bit. He was a dealmaker. My projection, my opinion, is that Collins would not have been involved in the uh, the executions and the extrajudicial activities that the Free State and government engaged in going forward. I don't think he would have done that. I think he did not want the Civil War, and I think that bothered him. I think that it bothered him to fight those who was, he was fighting. I think it bothered him to fight his friends and, and the people with whom he fought before. I don't think he would have let it get to the degree that it did. As a military commander, I mean, this is this these two months, the last two months of his life, he really is a conventional military commander to a degree, more than before. Uh, how did he get on as commander-in-chief of the National Army, in your estimation? Well, I think he got on pretty well, but I think he had... He had tremendous advantages by that time. I think he had the advantage of the Free State Army was really coming together, but they were being very well supplied by the British. They had a lot of, of, of arms and uh, uh, transportation coming in from the British that they could use. They did pretty well. Their, their, their landings in Cork to go to Tralee, and that, that, those are pretty, pretty good landings. They make an awful lot of sense. They should have been uh, more expected by the anti-treaty forces. They were expected, but they didn't, they didn't proceed very well to defend themselves. I think he did pretty well, but at the end, he went down on what was supposed to be a military inspection tour of the South, which was an absurd kind of a thing from a military view. I think he could have sent out a, a staff captain at that point or something to, to get a real good military view. There obviously were other reasons for it. He went to Cork. He was trying to uh, bring back some money that the IRA had taken out of the banks. He was down there negotiating with Florio Donahue and some of the others in terms of bringing it into the war. I think he did well as a commander, but again, I don't think he did very well uh, at the end. One of the things that I think is important to note is how military people advance today's army. They will be trained at a relatively small level, a company level, or maybe battalion level, a thousand soldiers maybe, but then at that point when they begin to become promoted beyond that, they go to other schools to learn how to command larger and larger units. Collins, I don't think, knew how to command an army. Mm. Now, the day that he died uh, is forever going to be remembered in Irish history by the place name also, Bell Um You've mentioned that you think the, the preparedness for the trip was shoddy, let's say. I, I do. Uh, remember, this This is sort of the second aspect of that trip. He was already on the start of it. He was down in, in Limerick when uh, Arthur Griffith died, and then he came back to Dublin, of course, for the, the funeral of Griffith. He went back to the south on this tour. However, the planning for the military aspect of that very day, I think, was just uh, rather... It would not have happened in in, uh, in any other circumstance he should have had at least two motorcycle outriders, at least four lorries of, of troops with him. He should not have been driving that car. That car was the kind of a car which was a ceremonial car to drive from the castle to the to the heiress or something like this. It was not good on the on the country roads of Cork. Let's just clarify this. So Collins is driving through gorilla-infested West Cork in an open touring car. Let you know it has no top, let alone bulletproof. And um, there is an armored car, but he's not in it. Yeah, it, it, it makes no sense. Uh, it, 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 it was it was the kind of thing that if if he had been going from from Dublin Castle to uh, uh, to inspect the troops in Tala, maybe that that might have been an adequate an, an adequate escort and an adequate thing, but certainly not in in gorilla infested the Cork uh, on those kinds of roads uh, in that car with that small of an escort. It made no sense at all. Was this due to the fact that Collins thought he could do a deal with the uh, with people like Liam D.C. who ended up commanding the ambush party? I mean, what did he think, that they wouldn't try to attack him? Yeah, again, Collins through his life had this strain of arrogance, mm -hmm. and I think this was a very arrogant kind of a thing. D.C. was supposed to have met him that night back in Cork. He did meet uh, Florio Donoghue before, on that trip in Cork, before he went down there. So I think he thought that he could do that. He could bring, he could talk to these people. I think he felt that he could bring his own personality. He could bring his own force of, of action to, to a meeting with them. And he could bring some kind of a, a, an end to the conflict. Again, when he would say, they're not going to shoot me in my own county, I think it was an arrogant kind of a thing. I just don't think he realized the danger he was in. And, you know, we talk about people thinking they're bulletproof. I don't think Collins thought he's bulletproof. I just don't think he thought about it at all. 
I mean, yeah, the one thing I, I, I would like to talk about as well is people sometimes describe the killing of Collins as an assassination. And some people from the an anti-treaty heritage, let's say, would, would contest that and they'd say, well, Collins died in action. He was firing back, so it's not an assassination. Um, do you think that the people concerned were trying to kill Collins or were they just attacking the convoy? Well, I think they were simply attacking the convoy. Uh, he came through in the morning. As I mentioned, there were, he, there were certainly people in the south who knew he was going to the south. However, the people in the ambush did not know he was going there. He simply went through the town, the, the little crossroads there at Bale de Flau, went by, the, went by the, um, the, the one pub. They saw him, came in, said, Collins is here. Absolutely by coincidence, there was a meeting of the anti-treaty forces there that day who had retreated from Cork and Kerry and other places, had nothing to do with Collins being in the area. They went by, but a great many of those people said, if he goes by here, it's our duty as soldiers to attack any convoy that goes through. We'd do it for anybody. And I think that they demonstrated that in their, their statements a little bit later. Um, they set up an ambush. They set it up early in the morning, 10, 10.30 in the morning, waited all day. Collins didn't come back. Then in the evening, they were tearing down the ambush. They had a mine laid in the road. They were dismantling the mine. They had dismantled the blocking uh, car in the road. Um, they were starting to retreat. Most of them had gone away, and they come back and they say, okay, geez, all of a sudden, here's Collins. And it was, by that time, the ambush was completely torn apart. Um, almost a fluke of terribly bad luck. He was the only one who was uh, killed in that particular thing. No, I can't see that being considered an ambush, uh, an assassination. I think that's simply an act of war. Why on earth did Michael Collins not simply get away from the ambush site once the fire was opened? He simply wasn't trained. Uh, I, th I think, again, in, in terms of an ambush, if it's a relatively far away, you obviously you, you get away. You, you, when, when Dalton said to drive like hell, he was exactly correct. Let's get out of this killing zone. That's, that's what you do in any ambush. Collins, uh, again, perhaps through his arrogance, they had been drinking some during the day. I don't know if that had a great effect upon it, but he simply said, no, let's fight them. Remember, even before they got to the ambush site, though, he had mentioned to, to Dalton, if there's anybody here, we will stand and fight. Again, that's an arrogant kind of a thing that doesn't make any sense. You don't ever want to put yourself in the killing zone of somebody else who has chosen that. The whole war of independence is we, the IRA, get determined the type, the place, the battle, everything. We never let the British determine this for us. And he puts himself in a position where they have determined exactly the battle site and that's just dead wrong. I mean, the thing is, it's for a number of reasons, that, like you said, it makes no sense. I mean, Collins, first of all, knew that, that, you know, it was better to determine the, you know, the, the conditions of, of combat. Dalton knew it. Dalton was, a, I think, a major in the British Army before yes. it's in the IRA. And thirdly, I mean, Collins is the commander-in-chief of the army. He has no business firing a rifle at people. So what, what's, what's he doing? I, I cannot explain that. <laughs> I, I can't even speculate on that. I can say it's arrogance. I say it's simply uh, somebody who was non-militarily trained. Uh, I mentioned before that he was not a line officer. He was a staff officer. Uh, the fact of the matter is, this is not something even a staff officer would do. No one would do this who had any sort of military, uh, any sort of military acumen at all would ever put themselves in that position. Now, to, to conclude about Belnablos, so there will forever be conspiracy theories, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna lay out just a few of them, and you can you can discuss them kind of at your at your, your leisure. So one of them is that um, you know Collins was set up by uh, he was lured in by for peace talks by Eamon de Valera, according to one, according by Fario Donoghue, according to another theory, and then he was you know he was set up and he was killed by an expert sniper. is the latest theory. Another one is that Collins was killed by a British sleeper, possibly Emma Dalton because he was too much of a threat to the British, because he wanted to reconcile with the anti-treaty side. He was killed by his own men, by Emmett Dalton, according to one theory. That, that's the two main conspiracy theories, I think. Do you, would, would you like to comment on them? You know, there are things we know about the ambush, and there are things we don't know. I mean, we know where it was, we know that, that Collins was killed there, uh, we know kind of how the road was. A lot of things we don't know. We don't know exactly why he was down there, because why would the commander-in-chief be going on, a, on this military inspection tour and things like that? Whenever human beings don't know something, I think it leaves doors open for people to throw in conspiracy theories. Another thing about conspiracy theories, by definition, one can't disprove them. 
So if one wants to believe that this happened, then in fact it's very difficult to dissuade that. I don't think that most of these have a great deal of merit. I don't think he was lured there. Uh, the guards, the, the, the Free State Government sent guard John Hickey down there in 1924, almost immediately after this, to determine if De Valera was involved, and he determined he was not involved. He was in the area, again, total coincidence. He walked through, he talked to Liam D.C., then he walked away. He had nothing to do with it. I don't think that Florio Donahue lured him down there. I do think that Florio Donahue was a treaty uh, was a uh, neutral in the in the Civil War, as he and Sean O'Hagerty had resigned from the IRA and everything uh, uh, leading up to this time. I don't think he lured him down there. I think that uh, he was not killed by Emmett Dalton. That makes kind of no sense to me. That he was killed by the uh, somebody else in the treaty part in the, uh, the the escort. If one takes a look just at the geography of the of the, um, the the site, the road curves a lot, and almost nobody could have seen where Collins was when he was shot from the escort itself. He was entirely on the other side of a curve. Um, the fact that there would have been a trained sniper who would sneak in on one of the other hills in a place that they would be able to get Collins doesn't take into, into account the idea that this is an ad hoc ambush, that there was no planning at all, and we didn't know he was going to be there anyway. They talk about the fact that he came down the same road and he shouldn't have done that, that that must have been a setup. It was the only road available. And if you're looking at the reason, to me, to, to demonstrate that it was the only road available, it would be that the anti-treaty forces only set up one ambush in this one spot. They didn't set up ambushes all over on all the other roads. They were, they were blocked the other roads, I think. They were all blocked or interdicted or the bridges were down or something else. They had to come back this way. So most of those take a little tiny piece of, of evidence and then they expand it, most of the time in my, in my thinking, they expand it to conclusions which are really not warranted by the evidence. I think that Collins was shot acting in a non-military fashion, in a military ambush that was set up specifically to get this convoy, not to get Collins, and that his own personal actions contributed as much to his death as anything else. So... In some senses, it might sound like we've been critical of Collins at various points, but I, I want to kind of sum up Collins' importance, though, in, in 20th century Irish history with a number of what-ifs. I don't know how you feel about what-ifs, Joe, but first what-if is, what if Michael Collins had, say, been killed in 1916? Would there have been a war of independence? That's a very interesting question. There, there probably would have been. Uh, remember, the, the, the British made mistakes all the way through this period. They made mistakes with the executions and the, the number of people that they, they took off to prisons. The, 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 the British contributed greatly to the War of Independence and to the way that it went. And it, I, I would see no reason why they wouldn't have continued to make those bad decisions all the way through. That might have been. I'm, I'm not sure that it would have con con been conducted in the way that it was. I think Collins, more than anybody, recognized the value of intelligence, recognized the value of getting rid of British intelligence. I think Collins recognized the value of negotiation earlier than other people did and the necessity for it in his position, which people credit him with being in a military position. Those who recognized the value of negotiation were probably not in any way involved with the army. I don't think the, the war or would have pro progressed the way it did, but I think it would have progressed in some fashion from the start. I mean... I guess the reason I asked the question is um, I, I, we should acknowledge the special importance of Michael Collins. He, he, really was, he really did provide a driving force for the independence movement in a number of ways. I think so. Again, I've mentioned that in the treaty debates, uh, Arthur Griffith said that, Arthur, uh, that, that Michael Collins was the man who won the war, which obviously did not sit very well to a great many of the other delegates, particularly Kyle Brewer. And I would disagree with Griffith's statement. He did not win the war. But I would say, in conjunction with what you're saying, that he was maybe the one person without whom the war would not have progressed as it did. My second what if is, what if Michael Collins had not signed the treaty in 1921? Let's say he had, he'd, he'd refused to sign it, gone home to Dublin and said, I can't sign it. You know, that's, that, that too is a very interesting question. The, the thing of it is, is that Collins felt that everyone had to sign the treaty. Griffith, of course, said, yes, I'll sign this. I think Collins said, yes, I will sign it. And then you had to bring along uh, Gavin Duffy uh, and, and Barton, and, and, and you had to have all five sign. 
Um, if Collins had not signed, if Griffith had signed and Collins had not signed, that, that's an extraordinary situation. I don't know what would have happened there. Uh, I don't think that Collins could have come back and said, I'm not going to sign it. I think he recognized that it was, it was the, the, the final thing that could have been done. Amy de Valera kept trying to say, ask for this external association, ask for a different oath. I think Collins, maybe in a sense of frustration as well as a sense of acknowledgement, we've asked for all these things before. They're not going to come. We're not going to get them. This is as good as it's going to get. Let's sign this now. Remember, in the back of his mind, he's always thinking, I am going to work the treaty. This is not the end, no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. Next, what if? Uh, what if Michael Collins had not attacked the four courts? There had been, if there, would there have been no civil war had he, take, had he not taken that decision? If Michael Collins had not attacked the four courts, I don't think that General McCready of the British could have withstood the orders from the British government not to attack the four courts thereafter. I think that, in fact, he could put them off. I think he could delay it. I think he could say it's a bad move. But if Collins had said, no, I am not going to attack the four courts, the British had plenty of troops left in Dublin at that time. They could easily have done so. They had the artillery, obviously, that they lent to the Irish uh, army. I think that the they had British, an air squadron as well, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the British would have attacked the four courts. Mm -hmm. And that would, would probably have been the end of the treaty in the Free State. Absolutely. In so, in a way, Collins deserves credit then for, for saving the settlement and... Well, As think, it turned out, the basis I, of Irish independence. I think so, and I think he understood that. I think he knew that if he did not do it, they would. And I think that he was trying to keep the British out at all costs. Uh, his constitution that he originally submitted over to Dublin was a very Republican constitution. There was no oath, there was no... Uh, you know, and they threw that out. Collins was trying to do all these sneaky things, if you will, in his words, work the treaty, if you will, from the very day it was signed. And the last what if then is an obvious one, but what if he had, had not been killed at Bail McLaw? What if he had done the sensible thing and driven like hell out of the ambush site back to court? Uh, he, he might have been able to end the Civil War more quickly. I think he probably could have. I think he could have made a deal somewhere with, with them. Would it have been a deal that would have stayed? I don't know. I think Collins would have told, for example, the anti-treaty forces, don't worry, we'll make this deal. You'll say you're turning your weapons, but just take them home. He would have told the cabinet, they'll turn in their weapons, we'll do the deal. Collins was telling everybody what they wanted to hear all the way through. Had the Civil War ended, he would have had another Civil War with his cabinet in order to do the things that he wanted, and they would not allow him to do that. They would have made, they would have told the North, no, we're going to do this, we're going to do the South first, we're going to get the country established and everything of, of those types. So I, I don't think that he would have been able to continue just as he wanted to. They would have had to bring constitutional ba constitutionality back. There would have been a meeting of the Assembly. Uh, the Doyle would have come back into in existence. I don't think he would have continued just as he was. I do think he would have continued in politics. I do think he would have continued trying to serve the Irish government in some way but I don't think that he would have been able to continue just as he was then. And I do think he would have been a great counterpoint to De Valera as you go through the 20s and 30s in terms of the various parties and, and, and how that would have worked out. I don't know how it would have ended. I know how he would have wanted it to end. He was interviewed by an American senator between the time of, of the, uh, the, treaty, uh, the treaty's ratification and his death, and the American senator said, now that you have the British out of here militarily, what are you going to do? And to paraphrase Collins, he said, the Irish nation must provide to the world the goods that it wants, at a price that it wants, at a price that it will pay, and in the delivery in the, in the best way possible. And if you look at Ireland today, I think that's very prescient, because I think that's what Ireland is trying to do today. Okay, Joe Connell, thank you very much. Thank you, John. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> mean that. Now, that was John Dorney talking to Joe Connell. If you'd like to listen to any previous episodes of the show, please go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie follow us on twitter at irishhistorypod or like our facebook page facebook.com forward slash the irish history show and if you get a chance please rate and review the show on itunes until next time thank you very much my name is Cahill brennan <laughs>